0: Promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, many of which are coming out of uh, Genesis. In fact, we have a Genesis survey until you get down to verse 23 when we uh, finally get through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we reach Moses in verse 23. So now we've gone from Genesis to Exodus at that point when we get introduced to Moses and Moses' parents. Tremendous uh, Old Testament survey with respect to believers that walked by faith and the faith that's necessary for pleasing God, as we've been studying. It's nice that the, the two studies have blended this way, as if uh, you know the Holy Spirit designed it to do that, that we have the teaching in Colossians related to pleasing God, uh, the, the walk that's worthy of the Lord, that you will uh, in, walk and bear fruit, that you will be pleasing in all respects. And now here in Hebrews, we have pleasing God as the consequence of faith, because without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And uh, really, we hit a a big roadblock or a brick wall i don 't know what you want to call it. We hit a speed bump in verse six, and i 'm going to use today to to stop and look at it and make sure we we really realize what this is saying because we want to walk the walk of faith and we want to make sure that we 're pleasing to god that 's really uh, fundamental to what we 're doing, and it uh, really combines well, I think. The uh, Colossians Hour and the Hebrews Hour. So that's what we'll be dealing with. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to, uh, to lead us in this truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You thankful for Your faithfulness, rejoicing that day in and day out, moment by moment, Generation to generation, Father, you are so faithful. We thank you for the blessings of your word that you've bestowed upon us, that we have the Hebrew canon of Scripture, we have the Greek canon of Scripture, we have the complete mind of Christ. And I thank you, Father, that uh, through your written word, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. I ask this morning, as we study to show ourselves approved, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. If uh, some of this gets technical, I pray that you. Uh, Help us to overcome whatever and help us to learn what we need to learn related to the difference between being and becoming. And, Father, uh, just bless our time of study as we center on the glory of Jesus Christ through the the, the, the prepared portion, through the teaching portion, and then into the communion service, Father, that everything would center on our Savior, on His glory, on the blessings that we have to, to be imitators of Him. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right and so dealing with the uh fundamental principle and you'll notice this as you kind of scan through the chapter and I'm not sure we've we've kind of averaged 10 classes per chapter uh, some more, some less, Chapter Ten was a little bit more, and chapter eleven i 'm suspicious about uh, because it 's teasing me with an awful lot of genesis material, and i 've already been leaning towards Genesis anyway for an upcoming book study, and this chapter will probably uh, seal the deal I think in in the excitement about about uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah and uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, that as we review the history of these characters uh, from the Old Testament, from Genesis, and how they are portrayed in Hebrews eleven in the in the faith uh, demonstrations or the faith testimonies, as we're looking at them, uh, it's all it's doing is really kind of getting the getting the the juices flowing. And and uh, I'm, I'm almost ready to announce that Genesis will be our new book study uh, upon the completion of Hebrews. So keep that in prayer too, as as we seek God's will for this. But You'll notice as you work your way through this chapter that we'll have a series of verses and then we'll have a, a commentary. The, the author will stop and he'll give a verse or two or more that, that kind of demonstrates a, an exhortation or an application to be made. And so uh, we had Abel in verse four, we had Enoch in verse five, and then we get a commentary. And it's the life of Enoch that launches the commentary. So Enoch, as we saw last week, was taken up so that he would not see death, because he was not, and he was not found because God took him up. He didn't die, but he was raptured so that he would be with the Lord without dying, and he would not see death. And then it says, he obtained the witness. And that's what this whole chapter is about, the testimony, the martyreo testimony of believers walking by faith. And the fact that fellow humans can testify, angels can testify, God himself testifies, Scripture testifies when faith is applied to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Enoch, in his walk, in the seventh generation from Adam, he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And the idea of pleasing God. This is what then launches the commentary in verse 6. The idea of pleasing and so he stops for a moment, he'll go back to his survey in verse 7, he'll go back to the, and they all they all get introduced with by faith, you know, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah. So we're going to be back to the next by faith character study in a moment in verse 7. But before that story, before that ne- that third by faith testimony is this application, this exhortation that comes and it gets triggered by the life of Enoch that he was pleasing to God. And that we should all be pleasing to God. In fact, it's essential. Without faith, there is no pleasing God. And that's the point being made here in verse 6. So the uh, testimony of Enoch about pleasing God in verse 5, it launches this exhortation in verse 6. You'll notice a few more of those as well. Um, We'll have the example of Abraham and Sarah that takes us from verse 8 all the way down to verse 12. And then look what happens starting in verse 13. It it stops the survey for a moment and it starts, it kind of gives a recap and it gives a summary and it gives uh, some additional principles that we need to identify with. And that takes us 13, 14, 15, 16. That's a much larger uh, exhortation section. And then when he returns to the by faith, it's back to Abraham again. Abraham gets a twofer. He had the one about having a baby. Now he has a second one when he's willing to kill that firstborn son. And so that's why we have a second by-faith Abraham in verse uh, 17. And then uh, a by-faith Isaac, and a by-faith Jacob, and a by-faith Joseph, and a by-faith Moses. Moses, it's really Moses' parents. And then another by-faith Moses in verse 24. And... um so forth. Anyway, you're going to notice this. So we're going to go through the by faith examples, and every now and then in the text there will be a break, and we'll have the application that's being made for you and I in uh, in the church age. And so verse six this morning is the first of those uh, commentary uh, interludes uh, in between in between the by faith testimonies that we have here in the chapter. I introduced you to the term sine qua non, or maybe if you've read Schaefer, you've already heard the term sine qua non. But the issue related to faith, because without faith, there is uh, no pleasing God. It is the sine qua non of salvation, and it is the sine qua non of priestly worship. In order to come to God, he who comes to God, that's priestly worship, as we're going to break it down. Started to last week. I'll return to it again here this morning in case it was fuzzy. Uh, but when we talk, it's a Latin phrase, sine qua non. It means without which, not. Right, without which nothing. So uh, we talk about the uh, Charles Ryrie and and Lewis Perry Schaefer, some of the early dispensationalists. They tried to discuss what was the sine qua non of dispensationalism, and uh, that would be the literal hermeneutic that that distinguishes between Israel and the church, for example. That uh, believers who confuse that by and large are going to not wind up being dispensationalists because they're going to confuse themselves in many other areas as well. Whereas those who have a literal hermeneutic and do rightly divide between Israel and the church, they will invariably, uh, be, come to a dispensational view of scripture by virtue of that element. And so I think they're right. I think Schaefer and Ryrie are correct that that division between Israel and the church is the sine qua non of dispensationalism. And, uh, we can preach that, but not today. That's, that's a message that's worthwhile at any time. But, so I'm adapting that language now for this. Because faith is the sine qua non. Without faith, you don't have salvation. Without faith, you don't have priestly function. And it's just that simple. Uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And ultimately, it's the, the priestly function that's centered in the pleasing God, such as we're seeing last hour in the Colossians series. So uh, that's why when uh, the question gets asked, what must I do to be saved? The answer is Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. That's why when the message is you must be born again, the, the mechanism for being born again is whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so whether you're talking about John 3.16 or John 3.18 or John 3.36 or Ephesians 2.7, pick a, pick a gospel passage that's your favorite and I guarantee you faith is in it. Because if there's no faith in it, it's not a gospel passage. It's, not, it's the only mechanism whereby we must be saved. And so faith is the sine qua non for getting saved. Now in addition, it's the sine qua non for priestly function. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Back in chapter 10 and verse 22 we saw it that we draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. If we don't have faith, we don't enter within the veil. This is uh, the confidence that we have. And so we should be drawing near. And uh, it is the full assurance of faith. So those believers that are saved and then choose not to walk by faith afterwards, and they never grow in the Word of God, they aren't discipled in the Word of God, they're not learning the Word of God by faith, they're not living the Word of God by faith, they're clearly not entering within the veil and engaging their priestly function by faith. Faith is the only way to do it. And so uh, we have it here. And really, this is another way of saying that as we come to God, we come to God in a couple of different ways. And we'll see that here as well. Some of this we covered last week already. But the idea of pleasing God, that's what was prime for Christ and his thinking. It should be prime for us and our thinking it should be the bottom line in everything that we do the prime motivation ask yourself well if i do this does that please god you know that's that's the fundamental issue in the will of god is it pleasing to him or is it not pleasing to him is am i am i making this choice because i'm pursuing my own good pleasure am i making this choice or am i taking this course of action am i uh pursuing this career, or am I dating this girl, or am I, uh, whatever I'm doing, just ask myself, why? Am I doing this to please the Lord, or am I doing this to please man, to please myself, to please my sin nature? Who am I trying to please? And if we we make God the number one target for our pleasure, then we're keeping ourselves in the will of God. That's uh, really the simplicity of that study. So pleasing God is the prime motivation for His beloved Son. It should be our prime motivation as well. Colossians 1.10, Ephesians 5.10, Hebrews 10.38 My righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. It doesn't say you lose your salvation but it says God the Father is not pleased with your present walk. And that's the, the warning time and time again through the book of Hebrews coming to God and coming to God, <laughs> you know, they're different things. They're different things. One of them is Erechimai, the other one's pros uh, but you wouldn't know it if you're just reading John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh to the Father but by me. Well, that's got to be by grace through faith. Same thing with coming to God in, in Hebrews eleven six. Now, let me ask you something here. Since Enoch was the example before his being raptured, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God. Is that talking about salvation? No, thank you. For he who comes to God. We're talking about Enoch and his mature walk. Enoch and his intimacy with the Lord. Enoch and his uh, the witness that, that he obtained before he was raptured. He who comes to God, this is our priestly function, the intimacy that we have in our walk with the Lord. He who comes to God must believe, there's the faith, that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So there's coming and there's seeking. And this is post-salvation coming and post-salvation seeking. And if... uh if we're clear on that, then half of this message is already preached, <laughs> All right? So it gets easier from there. I think where, where people complicate things is when they try to take this verse and then retrograde it, you know, reengineer it back into a into a gospel invitation or some kind of a some kind of a, a call to eternal life. All right. So he who comes to God and he who comes to God in John fourteen six it's erkomai in Hebrews eleven six it's pros erkomai. And, uh, and I think if we can, we can do those word studies, we can compare those words, we can also learn the blessings of prosukamai, which is the blessings of prayer. The fact is, is that those who come to God and come to God can then come to God in prayer. And that's the, that's the third Greek word there on that screen. So we're not going to do a lot of exegesis this hour, but uh, some of these things I think are worth, worth looking at. So I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Are we clear on that? We're clear that there's no other way of salvation other than Jesus Christ, that Buddha won't get you there, Muhammad doesn't get you there, Uh, you know, name whatever other religion you want. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Likewise, and that's by faith. Same thing here, by faith. The only way to the Father. Now, the things that we must believe, believe that He is, Believe that he is. We're going to talk about distinctions between being and becoming. Because this verse uses both the Greek verb amy and the Greek verb genomai. Believe that he is. Now, that's a a deep statement and it's beyond just simple lack of atheism. Okay? (laughs) Any atheists here today? All right. Well, then I would assume if there's no atheist in the room this morning, well, I can't, I can't assume that. I can't assume that because you believe that God exists, that there is a God somewhere, that doesn't qualify for this verse. Okay? Because it's bigger than that. It is the eternal, unchanging I am that God eternally I am is. Is. The best uh, motivation or or really a marvelous anchor for our soul is the eternality of God. His unchangeableness, his eternal faithfulness, the sense that, that he is there because he's always been there, he will always be there. That eternality of God drives us to his throne. That eternality of God uh, impels us. It encourages us. That Clearly, that's who we go to for our worship. That's who we go to to praise. That's who we go to to request the needs that we have to be filled. It's that eternality of God. And so it's the I am. Uh, we might kind of expand our translation here to make it more verbose by saying, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God in his priestly function must occupy by faith with the eternal unchanging essence of God. That He eternally is. We are fully submitting ourselves to the eternal I Am. This is what got Moses. I mean, Moses was so wishy-washy and so fearful of being the chosen prophet, and he didn't want to go deliver them. But when Yahweh Elohim gave him the I Am doctrine, When he revealed himself as the I am, when he taught the doctrinal significance of I am underlying the very name of Yahweh. That's that's what launched Moses into his into his prophetic ministry, into his deliverance role. In a sense, it was the I am language that commissioned Moses as the deliverer, as the Savior of Israel. So these I am messages, I recommend you study them. The, the seven I am's that Jesus utters in the gospel of John, for example, and uh, go through those. I am the door. I am the light. I am the light of the world. Uh, I am the good shepherd. All those I am messages, every I am statement is the, the glory of God because he's the only one. Absolutely. He's the only unique being, the only independent being without a creation, without a beginning, without, he is the eternal I am. All right? And that's, no one else can make those absolute statements. Everybody else had a beginning. Every angel had a beginning. Every human had a beginning. Any statement you and I make related to anything, if we, if we do have an I am statement, it's only relative. And, and, it, and every I am statement we make can be rephrased with an I became. And that's what I have to illustrate today. The difference between I am and I became. Because the I am becomes something when we go to him in prayer. The I am, genomai, becomes. And it's it's profound. It's like uh, when uh, the word became flesh. It says it should jump out at us just like John chapter 1 jumps out at us when we go through the description of God the Son from eternity past. So, we have our thinking caps on? Have I chased away the atheists? All right. So, the eternal, unchanging I am. First of all, that's by faith. That's who we approach. He who comes to God must, by faith, believe in the I am. In the I am. And the Ginnomai. He becomes a rewarder, a reward paybacker. We'll talk about those terms as well. The difference between being and becoming, okay? I'll come back to that. So becoming a rewarder. Now a reward, I think we can understand a rewarder. We, we can give rewards, we've received rewards, uh, different things. Rewards are not inheritance. Inheritance is based upon parentage, but rewards are based upon behavior based upon works, based upon service performed. And so the principles of rewards I think we're clear on. We want to embrace, though, the truth that the verb apodidomy speaks of payback. And to payback, God is the ultimate paybacker. And normally we cringe when we hear payback because uh, of our workplace and our coworkers, where we've learned that payback is not a pleasant thing. Or there's other human venues where payback is, is horrible. And uh, generally speaking, carnal humans try to outdo other carnal humans with worse payback than they received. And so that's just fighting fire with fire and being a sinner. And, and that's, sadly, that's what goes through our mind when we hear the idea of payback, okay? Well, God uses it a lot. And apodidomy is the Greek verb, and it really is a recompense, It is a recompense, and God administers the reward as a recompense, commensurate with what we're doing by faith or without faith, as the case may be. So in Matthew 6, we've got the pattern here of payback, and it's your father who sees in secret who will pay back. And uh, three examples of this in the same chapter that kind of tell the same story three different times in three different ways. But in Matthew 6 and verse 4, we're told, um, really verses 2 through 4, the whole point being is we're not serving God to show off. And we're not serving God so that people can watch us serve God and we can impress people. The warning comes in verse 1 of beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. That's, that's deep. I mean, that's, that's, that just lays it out there. That says, if you want to be a phony, be a phony, but there's no reward in that. Your father will not reward that. And uh, if you just want to be noticed by men, if you want to impress people with how godly you are, uh, that's the wrong motivation. We should be pleasing God, not man. So then the financial context has, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. You know, if you're going to go back there to the grace box and put five bucks in there or whatever you're going to do, don't blow a trumpet and say, hey, everybody, look at me. Look at me. You know, here's what I'm doing. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Keep it, keep it secret. This is, this is between you and the Lord. Your father sees what you're doing. He will repay. Because if your purpose is to be honored by men, then that's all the reward you're going to get. They have their reward in full. But verse 4 says, Your giving will be in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He will apodidamy you. He will pay you back. You will get the divine payback from God the Father for this secret, private giving that you're doing for His glory. Not to show off, not to impress people, but because you love the Lord. Same thing with prayer. Don't be like the hypocrites, they love to stand and pray these long flowery words and. They, uh, it's like performance art. They want people to be all impressed with their dramatic uh, stage presence or how, how devout they are in their prayers. And ooh, wow, that person can really pray. That's not why we pray. And that's, our motivation should be, you know, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret, your father who sees what is done in secret, apodidomy, will repay you. We'll repay you. And then uh, verse 18, when it comes to fasting, you know, don't put on a gloomy face and act all neglected and, you know, go around looking like death warmed over. So, so people will be, ooh, what's wrong with you? And oh, I'm fasting, I'm suffering for Jesus. Or, you know, we're not bragging about how holy we are. That's not the point. In fact, you should be so good at this that nobody even knows you're doing it except you and God. So your fasting will not be noticed by men, but your Father who is in secret, your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So we have that as the principle. Matthew 16, 27, another example. You know, I think some people pay a cost and they don't realize they're paying it. Because they're not willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus, they compromise And then they sell their soul. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. Second Advent is the ultimate payback in the history of planet Earth. It is a global payback for the tribulation that Israel will be enduring in those seven years. And so this is to be looked forward to. Revelation 22.12 The final chapter of the Bible. And what does he say? Behold, I come quickly. And here we are 2,000 years later saying, really? Yes. Okay. Don't think that he's slow. Some count slowness. Because he's patient. But he does say, I come quickly. And my payback is with me. To render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So now these things uh, are clear. Now, we have the eschatological payback. Can uh, what What do we know about payback prior to that? What do we know about... Uh, receiving from the Lord prior to Second Advent. So I got needs now. <laughs> I'm going to the Lord for provision now. And, uh, you know, is, can I expect that there's anything that will be given prior to Armageddon? I mean, or do I have to wait 2,000 more years? When do I have to wait when I, I'm asking in my priesthood, when I'm asking, when I'm seeking, and when I'm knocking? Do I have to wait for Second Advent for that provision to be made? No. Because payback is not only eschatological, payback is also current today, right now, ecclesiological in the church. And it's triggered every single time we, we enter into His presence. And so Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. I'm spending more time in Matthew today than uh, Hebrews, that's all right. Matthew chapter 7. Verses seven through eleven and, and we just have to get past the verse that all the unbelievers know and quote when they throw it in your face. How many times have I had an unbeliever say, Judge not lest you be judged? And they think that if they quote they don't they don't know it's Matthew seven, one, but they, they quote it and they think that's their way to that I have to stop talking or something. And uh fail to realize that uh yeah, yeah, I've taken the, the beam out of my eye, and I'm ready now to start addressing specs. Um, that's a different sermon. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. That's the promise. And as it's iterative here, as it's, as it's phrased, every time you ask, every time you seek, every time you knock. Okay, So how often can we do this? Thank you. That's right. We're not on a schedule whereby we have to look at the calendar and make sure, oh wait, is this the right month? Is this the right day? Have I brought the right goat? Uh, Can I send the high priest in there to represent me that one day a year? Or, day after day, as long as it's called today, do I have that privilege to ask and to seek and to knock? I absolutely do. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks... Receives. Now, that sounds absolute. I don't need an intercessor. I don't have to go get a mediator. I don't have to sit in a booth and confess to some somebody. No, I'm I'm going to him in my own priesthood. And he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. The neat thing about this, of course, is that uh, you have to be humble to thank the Lord for what He provides, and when He opens the door, um, go through the door He opens, and it may not be the door you wanted. But it's the door he needed. What man is there among you who, when a son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? I mean, human parents don't do that. Not normal ones. Maybe some sick, twisted dad somewhere might. But, you know, the, the point here being, if humans know how to take care of their children, what do you think God's doing? God knows what he's doing. Or if a son asks for a fish, the dad's not going to give him a snake, will he? So if, if we are praying and asking for the right things, asking according to His will, asking in faith, then uh, He's faithful. So, um, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everyone who knocks, the doors are opened. And this is our privilege. And faith is what gets us here, every time. Now, if you ask without faith, what do we expect? Y- yeah, don't expect anything. If you ask without faith, the book of James chapter 1 says, don't, don't be asking without faith. At that point, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, and the Father doesn't reward that. But with faith, you're pleasing to Him. And every time we ask, seek, and knock, every time. Now, here's how I know it's every time. Because of the grammar in, in Hebrews, the, the vocabulary and grammar of Hebrews 11:6, he who comes to God must believe that he is, that's our occupation with his eternal unchangeableness, that's our, our faith appreciation for his eternality, must believe that he is and also believe that when we come to him, he becomes. He becomes the reward paybacker. That's when he becomes the rewarder. He becomes the rewarder. Okay? Believe that he is and that he becomes. He, Amy and Ginomai, becomes the rewarder of those who seek him. Of those who seek him. Okay? So, this is the... uh, this is the blessings of every time. So it's like, when does, um, when does Popeye get his strength? When he eats his spinach, right? When does, uh, when does uh, Billy Batson become Captain Marvel? Or Shazam? He says Shazam, okay? When, does, you know, when do these things get triggered? When do these things happen? When does God become the rewarder? Well, it's like every time Papa eats his spinach, every time you and I come to him, those who seek him, God becomes, becomes. And this is what we want to recognize. This becoming for the eternally being one is as profound as the incarnation of Jesus Christ in John chapter one. I'm going to show you that here in a moment. You can turn there if you like. John chapter 1. We're going to the eternal, unchanging God by faith. And we stand before Him. And as we stand before Him, He becomes a rewarder. He becomes a rewarder with our presence there. Am I making sense this morning? Should I stick with Popeye and the spinach? Was that better? Think of it as a trigger. Think of it as an event. Think of it as a stimulus. Think of it as as a thing that causes. It's causative. And so this is the language. Now, it's troublesome in some respects because I'm not saying God changes. He's immutable and He doesn't change. So without changing, he nevertheless becomes something he was not before. Like when the word became flesh. So I think we have uh, really a a neat um, illustration here uh, that helps us and might even help to motivate us to come before the Lord more often by faith, to enter within the veil by faith, And even if uh, we don't have a specific need at the moment, that doesn't stop us from coming. That doesn't stop us from standing before him and worshiping him and praising him and just reflecting upon how great he is. All right, John chapter 1, we can see the Amys and the Gittimis. And in this chapter, you actually have to look through a sequence of verses because they're not compact together the way they are in Hebrews 11.6. Nevertheless, I think it's maybe easier to teach than Hebrews 11.6. Because we have the eternally being one. Eternally being, the eternal I am. The eternal I am, which none of us are. So I am the pastor of Austin Bible Church. Everybody agree? We're clear? All right. That's not eternally I am. That's an I am that had an I became. I became. November of 1996. No, 1995. All right? I became. And every other I am. I am the father of four children. But I became when the fourth child was born. Because before that, I am, I was... (laughs) And and with God, it's never an I was either. It's always the eternal I am because he's beyond space and time and he's the existing one in all times. But so I became, right? I became the father of one, the father of two, the father of three, the father of four. Each of these sequential becomings allowed me then to make a new I am statement. See, and that's true for every I am statement you want to do. We could spend all day doing this. You get the point. None of us can make an eternal I am statement that's without qualifications, without Genesis, without beginning. Only God can absolutely, infinitely say, I am. Because he always has, always is, always will be in his simplicity. And this comes up then. This is uh, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. This is Amy. This is the eternal statement of being. He's without beginning. But he was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is Amy. This is eternal being. He was in the beginning with God. Eternal being with fellowship. (coughs) All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now we start getting introduced to the things that became like the heavens and the earth. When in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So they came to be. They became. And they became because the I am wanted them to become. We're going to see this in Colossians chapter 1, too, by the way, the firstborn of all creation. How Jesus Christ, the God man, is the creator of the universe. So there's being and there's becoming. And they're completely different. So of all the things that became, including Satan, by the way, Satan's a created creature. He became what he was when he was created. This is what makes his vow when he says, I will be like the Most High God. It's nonsensical. It's insane. Because he's already exists. He already is a created being. You can't retroactively become an uncreated being when you are a created being. So his fifth I am, I will be like the Most High God, is insane. I think all five are insane. Now we have verses 1 through 3 that show us the Amy and Gidemi applications. The being and the becoming. God is the only absolute being. Everything else besides God became. And so it makes it so profound then that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Understand the the humility of God the Son. Understand the kenosis when God the Son agreed with the Father, submitted to the will of the Father, and subjected Himself to finitude, our finite experience. When He, in kenosis, laid aside His privileges, now He's unchangeable, He doesn't stop being God. He's immutable. He cannot change his being. He still is. He's still Jesus is still the I am even when he empties himself and, and, and functions on that limited basis. All right? So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's why we say he is undiminished deity yet true humanity. United together in one person forever. That's hypostatic union. So the word became flesh. Genemi, again, to become something you were not before. If you were that before, then you didn't become it now. Okay? So clearly, if you're becoming something, it has to be something you were not before. And he became flesh. That is, the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. In utero. In Bodily form. And then through physical birth, swaddled in the, the garments and, and uh, in the swaddling rags and held in human hands. The creator of the universe was held in human hands. How amazing is that? So as we ponder the incarnation, as we ponder the virgin birth, as we ponder we're not really... Appro- well, okay, we're closer to Christmas than other times of the year. But as we're pondering the incarnation, and the difference between being and becoming, take those concepts and plug them into Hebrews 11.6. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he becomes a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. See, otherwise, if we don't identify the Amy and the Ginomai in this verse, then we're trapped by two ises. And I don't want us to be trapped with the two ises. Because in the New American Standard reading, and I think most of the modern Bibles, he is and he is, right? He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. And so you're just reading this English verse and you've got is and is. And you don't even realize there's two different is's there, okay? There's two different ises. So what do you mean by Is. What do you mean by, that's not a Bill Clinton joke, but kind of. It's Bill Clinton said, well, it depends on what is means. You remember that? All right. And he felt like he could say there is not a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And he could say that, he thought, honestly, because as he was saying that, there is, he wasn't presently engaged in intercourse. So there isn't. Maybe there was, but there isn't, okay? And so he says, based upon my definition of is, meaning right here, right now, talking to lawyers in this room, there isn't. And it was Weasley and it was a dodge and everybody knew it, okay? Exposed for what it was. This verse, though, has the is and the is with the Amy, the eternal glory of being, That's who we go to in prayer. And then the becoming of Genomai, the becoming of his rewarder function, when he becomes the rewarder. So every time we enter the veil and stand before him, it's like the spinach for Popeye. He becomes the rewarder. We ask, we seek, we knock. He becomes the rewarder. He becomes the rewarder. And I think it's profound. I think it's how in the world can, and only by God's condescending grace, only by God's, why does Jesus use the unrighteous judge as a metaphor? Because he picks the most outrageous metaphor to prove his point. He's not an unrighteous judge. So let's keep nagging him. Let's keep going back over and over and over again. Let's be like that widow. She wore that judge out. And he finally threw up his hands and said, fine, you can have whatever you want. And God used that ridiculous, extreme metaphor that doesn't apply to him anyway. He's not an unrighteous judge. But he used it and said, go do that. He said, you be as pesky as that widow was in my story. And if you're as pesky as that widow is in my story, man, look out, because that's the power of prayer. Pesky, persistent prayer. And every time we stand before him, he becomes the apodinomy payback rewarder. It's a beautiful thing. And so you you get excited over this kind of thing and you realize, man, I want to be in there all the time. I want to to be before my father every day. I want to pray without ceasing. Oh, wait a minute. I've got a command that tells me to do that. Okay, (laughs) good. Because I want to do that. I want to be before him all the time. And the, uh, the blessings of that. All right. Well, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the next example is going to be Noah. And uh, we'll get a little bit into this because Noah takes a while and uh, we have communion today. But by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, You know, sometimes faith is hard and sometimes faith is more hard (laughs) because we're finite, we're human and we like to look at stuff and we realize that, that essentially there's two sets of eyes. There's the human eyes and the spiritual eyes. And when we're walking by faith, it's the spiritual eyes we're engaged in. And sometimes our earthly eyes will not only not see it, but they'll see the opposite our earthly eyes will look around and say, wait a minute, this is wrong. And this is the, the case with Noah. In the, in the sense that um, it wasn't raining <laughs> yet. It wasn't raining when Noah obeyed. Okay? But he obeyed God anyway. He trusted God by faith. Not only was it not raining, it had never rained. Rain was not the mechanism in the pre-flood hydrology of planet Earth. Instead, they'd have morning mists that would arise. Rain didn't start until Noah was in the ark. And then the first rain came, and boy, it was, <laughs> it was a doozy, right? That first rain, 40 days. And so by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark. So there's the fear of the Lord. There's faith. Prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. See, when we apply faith, there can be additional benefits, blessing by association. It's the faith of Noah that benefited Mrs. Noah and three boys and their wives. Eight souls are going to survive the ark because of one man's faith. We don't know about any of the other seven human beings, if they were saved or not. We assume they were, but that's an assumption it's noah's faith that is rewarded it's noah's faith that produces that proves the testimony so in reverence he prepared an ark for the salvation of the world now how 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 long did this take he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years imagine the ark took a lot of that time the bulk of that time whatever length of time it took to build it I don't think he really could have subcontracted with a lot of help for other, you know, he had three boys helping him and hopefully none of them were like me. Ideally, maybe they were all helpful. And imagine, comedians will joke about it. Bill Cosby will joke about it. The comedians will joke about, you know, the neighbor and the boat blocking the driveway and all the ridicule that Noah receives as he's building this thing from his neighbors and whatnot. And he's a preacher of righteousness. We'll see as we go back and examine the Noah verses. But he's prepared it, and it was uh, designed as the instrument of salvation. So God directed it, man did it, and it's the instrument that saved him. So we have the noun salvation there. Uh, Salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Notice, he condemned the world. He's doing all this. In reverence, he prepared an ark by which he condemned the world. And he, Noah, became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So there's a lot of doctrine in the life of Noah. And we're going to see this. There's doctrine that applies in the sense of the warning as Second Advent approaches, because days are coming that are like the days of Noah. And that's an eschatological study as it relates to the tribulation of Israel and the things yet to come. So, as we just tease this as we get ready, Noah's testimony led to preservation. I know it says salvation there. I'm going to change it out to preservation. It's a phase four salvation in the sense of earthly dangers that God rescues us from and saves us from. Preservation through global judgment and entrance into inheritance. Verse 7 speaks of both. The preservation and the inheritance. And this is what's the pattern then for Israel in the tribulation because they're preserved through tribulation then they enter into inheritance in the millennial kingdom. That's why Israel has to have a tribulation first and then a millennium. They can't just go straight to the millennium. The typology of Noah and the flood indicates the preservation first, then the uh, inheritance. So we will uh, come back to this next week and we'll look at Genesis 5, we'll look at Genesis 6, we'll remind ourselves of the Noah study. But remember what Abel's (coughs) testimony led to. Abel's testimony led to his death. Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. Noah's testimony leads to his preservation through global judgment. And so just think of those first three examples. Before we get to Abraham and Sarah, before we get to the Jews, before we get to, we're still dealing just with Gentiles, with um, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And in this early part here of Genesis 11, we've got Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And we've got the faith testimonies, that lead to death, that's Abel rapture, that's Enoch and then preservation through global judgment that's Noah and in those three, in the typology of those three characters and their faith testimony we actually have a functional outline for our own eschatology in the sense that the church is going to end with what? Death and rapture takes every member of the church out of here. Most of the bride's already gone through physical death. But the the last remnant of the church will depart through rapture. And then we'll have global judgment. And in that global judgment we're going to have believers preserved by faith. We're going to have a remnant by faith sustained through the great tribulation of Israel. You can actually use this outline from Hebrews in these early testimonies of faith to show death, rapture, preservation through global judgment and uh, provide a eschatological outline for the things yet to come. Anyway, I thought that's interesting. We'll come back next week and we'll deal with Noah, his preservation. We'll deal with the blessings of faith in things not yet seen because remember faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we have uh, the uh, I think, the the very convicting reminder that that uh, Noah didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we have. He didn't have the Old and New Testaments like we have. He didn't have, you know how much Scripture he had? Written Scripture? None. Because Moses didn't start writing uh, Hebrew Scripture until centuries later. But they walked by faith. They walked by faith, and that should encourage each one of us. Father, I thank You for this morning, and I thank You for this truth. And I pray that we have an understanding of these things, that that we would understand that there's two different kinds of is's in the uh, eternal being versus the the temporal becoming, and the fact that every time we come before you, you become the rewarder. That's that's deep, Father. We want to we want to make you become that rewarder more than ever before. We want to make you become again and again and again every time we stand before you. And Father, we're not limited to certain seasons or certain days or certain events. Father, uh, your Son opened the way eternally, consistently, forever. We 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 enter within the veil all day, every day if we want to. We stand before you in our priestly function at a moment's notice. We obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need, and that time is now. Father, I pray that you would uh, take this message and open our eyes to it, help us to see it, help us to understand it, help us to live it out, to see it for what it is. Thank you for the examples of these Old Testament heroes. Uh, We've seen uh, three of them now. There's so many more to come. And Father, uh, it's the example for us to learn from and to be uh, rebuked by, Father, because we are without excuse. The things written beforehand are written for instruction, and if we ignore them, we ignore them to, to our peril. So Father, we just give you the praise and the glory for all that you do. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.